0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, where we talk journalists and journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Sharon Davis, and a word of caution before we begin. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are respectfully advised that today's program may contain the names of people who have died. On the weekend, tens of thousands of Australians came together as Black Lives Matter protests took place around the globe. The catalyst was the terrible and tragic death of George Floyd in the United States. George Floyd died after a police officer pinned him to the ground and held a knee against his neck for almost nine minutes as he pleaded, "I can't breathe." After the confronting footage of his death was broadcast worldwide, the officer was charged with murder. Like many people around the world, Australians were appalled by this callous and seemingly indifferent murder of an unarmed black man. And for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, George Floyd's death had a particular resonance. Five years ago, Dungaree man David Dungay Jr. died in Long Bay Jail, after being held face down by six prison officers. His last words, I can't breathe. In David's case, there were no global protests and there have been no prosecutions. His family says they're still waiting for justice. It seems that we often know more about police and prison violence and race discrimination in the US than we do in our own backyard. Is there a conversation Australians should be having about our own racial injustices? And is our media properly reflecting this back to us? To help us in this important discussion, we're lucky to be joined by two fearless journalists – both under difficult recording conditions, Lorena Alum is descended from the Gamilaray and Yawalare nations of northwest New South Wales. She's the Guardian's Indigenous Affairs editor. She's also been head of Indigenous radio at the ABC. Amy McGuire is a Duranboll and South Sea Islander journalist and broadcaster. She's been the editor of the National Indigenous Times and Tracker magazine and was a former NITV National News political correspondent. Amy joins us from her home in Queensland with a young child in tow. Amy and Lorena, welcome. Is it fair to say that we often know more about police violence and race discrimination in the US than we do here? Lorena, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's absolutely true that wider mainstream Australia knows more about what goes on in America and has more more empathy, I think, for people who are, experiencing, who are experiencing this level of police violence. They seem to be extremely reluctant to look in their own backyard because if they did, they'd find that the situation here is much worse for our First Nations people than it is for African-Americans. And while we don't want to play that game that sort of people call the oppression Olympics, but it's certainly a fact and it's certainly been borne out in, you know, any number of investigations, inquiries and reports over the over decades.
2: Oh, no, I definitely um, agree and echo that because, I mean, I think it's just obvious that um, Australians more likely are more likely to be outraged by events happening overseas, and that's obviously, you know, because of distance. Um, but also I think it's obvious, a de- you know, a deliberate erasure of the experience of Aboriginal people. I think that's definitely true, and I think we see it in obviously the fact that there's no outrage greeting the, the deaths of the Aboriginal mob over here. Um And I always think of it's very comparable to the Native American experience and the silencing and the erasure of the Indigenous population over in America. Because I've actually seen statistics where they have higher rates per population of um, incarceration but also police brutality. And I just I think we just see it in the numbers that turn up to protests before the recent historic protests in the weekend. Like, we just never used to get the same level of, of interest. Um, so I think that's definitely true. Do black lives matter in Australia?
1: They matter to us. I'm not sure how much they matter to the rest of Australia, though. I mean, it was wonderful to see so many people turning out in support and marching um, and, and wanting to know more, wanting to be good allies, whatever that really means. That's all really encouraging. Um, but we know for a fact that institutionally black lives don't matter. Um, we know that just by the sheer numbers of our people who are going into custody and who are dying there of absolutely preventable things. In the case of Aunty Tanya Day, the police locked her up because she was intoxicated and said it was for her own good. Now, how is it that no officer is being held personally responsible for having done that? How is it in her best interest to, to, to suffer a fatal head injury in a police cell because she was intoxicated on a train? That doesn't happen to white people in this country. And that is what what we talk about when we say Black Lives Matter. That stuff is absolutely preventable. And it is absolutely the fault of of, um, systemic racism. And that's
0: what needs to change. Amy, I think you described it in an article for the Saturday paper last weekend as a national silence. What do you mean by that?
2: I mean, I think there's been a silence around violence perpetrated against Aboriginal people since the very beginnings of the invasion, and that was very deliberate. Um, And so what I mean is, I mean, I think it's the very purpose of prison in a way and why we have such high rates of um, black jailing rates as well, because it's about containment. It's about keeping you out of sight. It's about making you invisible. And there is a silencing around what is actually happening to mob, and we see that in the way that uh, different forms of violence are actually illuminated, so you'll see often in the media, and we've seen it just in the past week, people start talking about, oh, but what about black on black crime, or what about violence in communities? Um, with Ooh. no sort of form of the historical context at all. And that just serves to deflect and make invisible again the forms of state-sanctioned Ooh. violence that led to the death of people like David Dungay Jr., like Aunty Tenya Day, like Rebecca Ma, like Miss Jew, like Mr Ward. All of these levels of violence perpetrated not just at the end of their lives but throughout their lives are made invisible, and that's what I, I mean by silence. Um And I think, you know, I, I am actually just in a way outraged at the shock when non-Indigenous Indigenous Australians say, well, we didn't know about this, we didn't know about Joyce Clark we didn't know about Mr Walker. And I just think, well, how can you not know? You know what I mean? Like, we all know. Mm. So I just, um, yeah, I'm sort of, and, and it's always, the onus is always on Aboriginal people to break that silence, you know what I mean? and And it's just been constant since the very beginning, so there definitely is a national silence um, in this country.
1: It's true. Historically, the police were the agents of oppression and and massacring. So, you know, it was really common, more common than not, for government forces and police officers to be involved in the mass killings of our people over a century. And then police were actively involved under protection legislation in removing our kids. So you can see that this, this is a deeply toxic relationship where police have been used to eradicate Aboriginal people since since the beginnings of colonisation.
0: Lorena, you've consistently reported on black deaths in custody at both The Guardian and before that at the ABC. But do you think that part of this national silence can be targeted at the media? Do you think there's been enough focus by other media on these things?
1: No, I don't. I would lo- I also want to acknowledge the work of Amy McGuire and other First Nations journals who do this work and who've done this work year in, year out for a really long time. Um, there's there's a lot of Indigenous media who work very hard to maintain focus on this issue. Um, in terms of the broader mainstream media, no, there, there's not a huge appetite for these sorts of stories. And often when, when they are reported, they are reported with a, an appalling lack of context or with a particular spin in mind. And while, I, you know, I don't really want to go down... This passed too much other than to say that we saw a really good example of that in the last few days where there were, there was, there's was there there been reporting that is factually incorrect that seems to be designed to want to diminish and minimise the true extent of deaths in custody for no other purpose than to, to offer a deflection or maybe to offer comfort to white people who feel uncomfortable being faced with these truths. I think that a lot of the media reporting is quite racist and irresponsible I mean it's it's well past time that when you have a panel conversation about important issues facing Aboriginal people, you include Aboriginal voices on those panels. It's not okay anymore to continue to just have white people making you know their opinions felt, what they think. You need experts who understand, as Amy has written really well in the past, the historical context for all of this, and to give you some facts, I think um, that's what needs to change.
0: We had a particular example of that on the weekend, I think, at the Insiders, where um, it was an all-white panel talking about the protests that took place on the weekend.
2: I think that's very true. Everything that um, Lorena just mentioned, and I would I would agree that the media has been... It's in the way they, they report these issues. I find that they often privilege the police accounts. Even before, I mean, even on the day that that people have died, they privileged police accounts. Um, And I think that's a fundamental problem. Not, I mean, I think some individual journalists need to be called out, but I think it's a fundamental problem of the structure of media and the way we report as well, Um, because I think it often does the service of those in power. Um, And for many um, journalists, their experience is more aligned with that of the police than an Aboriginal person living in an outing community, living in a regional area you know, like, so they're more likely to believe the witnesses that they, um, or the, the informants that more closely re- re- resemble their experience. So I think it, it shows, Um, I mean, it, it points to a structural problem in media where we don't have diversity. And we saw that in the insiders panel. And the fact that we can continually have white journalists speaking for us, I mean, it's never called out. And I think this coming week is the first time that we'll actually have an okay. Aboriginal journalist, Bridget Brennan, on the Insiders panel. So I think it says it all. It's a, it's a structural problem, a deep problem with with the way media is set up. Mm-hmm. The fact we don't have, um, only recently we've had a lot of Aboriginal journalists in the mainstream, you know, like largely it has been, you know, the grounding um of Aboriginal media who have done a lot of this work. So it's only been recently that even mainstream has opened up to allow Aboriginal voices, you know. So I think it points to a real fundamental problem with, with the way the media actually stands today. The, the diversity issue is
1: a massive structural problem, particularly at our public broadcasters. I mean, Amy's right when she says that it's only recently that we've had a lot of journals in the mainstream. But there are a lot of people. There are a lot of indigenous people behind the scenes who who fought very, very hard for that to be possible. Those people should be acknowledged as well. I think it's great that insiders have listened to public criticism about this. But it's not the first time it's happened, and and I hope that it will be the last. But but, you know, I think the structural issues are that a lot of journo's belong to a particular um, economic class and a particular ethnic background, and that makes. Their, their capacity to see a story from lots of different angles quite limited. So I also want to shout out to Indigenous media who do this work, important work on the daily, talking to our mob about issues that matter to them. And I think that is that that is a, a form of our media it really is really precious, really important and is woefully underfunded. So, you know, I think if people want to get educated on on Indigenous matters, they they could also turn to Indigenous media.
0: Lorena, two years ago, The Guardian and yourself, you know, as a big driver of this, put together a database called Deaths Inside that documented the number of Indigenous deaths in custody in I think just a bit more than the last 10 years. Why did you put that database together? Uh,
1: so... We had a question that we couldn't get answered by any jurisdiction, which was how many Aboriginal people have died in custody since the Royal Commission in '91. Um, Those statistics are kept, but they are kept in really uh, scattered environments, or they are uh, kept—they're a bit out of date because the Institute of Criminology has very, um, you know, strict sort of methodologies around the release of figures, and quite often only will only count a death in custody after a coronial process has been completed. So we knew that there were a lot of cases where people were waiting years for to be you know for their cases to come before a coroner and then to receive a decision so we thought those numbers were possibly an underestimation of the true size of the problem so we decided to do a count and we quickly realized that going all the way back to 1991 doing just the way we wanted to was just beyond us so we chose a 10 year period from 2008 to 2018 which was the year we started and we counted all Aboriginal deaths in custody over that 10-year period and for a five-year period we counted all non-Indigenous deaths in custody as well so we could find a sort of a, a, we had enough of a number numbers to provide a statistical comparison and then because it is not about numbers we wanted to tell the stories of each and every one of those Aboriginal people who had died in custody and and tracked what it was they died of so we could measure things like whether they got the treatment they deserved, whether the coroner's inquest had been completed, whether the families had raised issues about the results or about the process, whether anyone was held to account, how many recommendations were made by which coroner, those sorts of data points. And then when we published the, the front, the public facing data, uh, database, we want every square on that database is a, is a person. And we told a little bit of their story, as it were, you know, based on the primary sources that we read. So, and and we didn't use people's names unless the families gave us express permission to. And we put it, put the database behind a, um, you have to opt in, and there's a, there's a bit of a warning on the front that says, you know, there's some really distressing material in here. Just we we were really mindful all the way through that while this is a, a really confronting project, and God knows it, it broke my heart. Um we also wanted people to know that they you know, that that they were opting in to, to read some pretty full on material.
0: And what did you find when you were doing that particular survey across all of these deaths? Were there were there things that really stuck out at you about the system and the system's failures?
1: Yeah. So in more than half of the cases, uh people Aboriginal people who died in custody weren't convicted or charged of a crime and most of them were on remand they died of preventable um, medical uh, procedures and, and this is this is important because a coroner will often say that someone died of natural causes but we know reading the coronial reports that that is that is a, 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 a gross misrepresentation of what's happened to them in, the, in their lives in the lead up to their incarceration and the, the treatment they received in custody. Um, we found that in most cases, the governments failed to follow their own procedures. That Aboriginal people died needing medical care that wasn't provided, and we found that Aboriginal women were more were less likely to receive care that they needed than Aboriginal men. So, some pretty appalling statistics there.
0: So, there were these major things that you saw in there. Was there any difference from what a royal commission saw when they were looking in deaths in custody?
1: No, no, not at all. In fact it, it in fact the fact that there is no difference is even more appalling because that was thirty years ago. And you know, to to in nineteen ninety one I was a baby journo, so you can do the maths and work out how old I am now. And the first one of the first stories I did was I was went out to Wolgate with the Royal Commission, uh, when um, the late Bob Belair was council assisting. And we had we I covered the hearings of the Royal Commission in Walgut. So to read coronial reports that were almost identical to the ones that we heard back then was profoundly depressing because no, not much has changed. In fact, in on many indicators things are worse. And given that governments have been made aware for decades what they need to do to keep people out of custody Um, and have chosen not to act on those recommendations, these numbers are even more appalling.
2: And it had to do with what she said about Aboriginal women. I think the only potential difference that might be, I mean, maybe it's not, but um, I think with the Royal Commission, they didn't really focus on gender, and that was a big failing Mm. at the time in relation to the Royal Commission. And it's been um, something that's been criticised by Aboriginal Aboriginal scholars like Professor um, Megan Davis. And I think we, there is a bit of a change in relation to that we are focusing a lot on the very specific issues that affect being both Aboriginal and a woman in, in custody. And we saw that with Ani Tanya Day's case with Miss um, Jew's case and Miss Ma's case and all that, you know, and some of those, as Lorena was saying, are very similar to some of the cases of the women. There was 11 um, Aboriginal women who died in custody; whose cases were investigated by the Royal Commission. We never spoke about those women. You know what I mean? Those women never made the front page of papers. So mm. I think that might be um, the change that we need in relation to looking specifically also at, at the intersections of gender and race and class, which may have been a failing of the Royal Commission. But I think that's what is important when you read the Royal Commission documents. We have this groundswell of information that's already been done, has largely been ignored, and a lot of the information is in the individual death reports.
1: This is really, really significant, um, it, and that is that average, when Aboriginal average women go into the custody system, whole families are blown apart by that, and we have a massive problem in this country of our kids going into uh, out-of-home care in increasing numbers, and there's a direct line between the kids in out-of-home care and, and our uh, women in the in the justice system and then they are more likely at, and they are more at risk of ending up in the criminal justice system from being in out-of-home care. So there's a clear link there where women need to be um, kept home with their families. A lot of Aboriginal women are in jail now for matters to do with really minor offences like unpaid fines or um, domestic violence, uh, you, you know, Issues that have come from them fleeing domestic violence. So this is a huge unexplored area. Um, And I think, in terms of the media, I mean, it's not like there hasn't been enough um, good reporting and studies done. The most recent one was uh, by Professor Davis called Family Use Culture, looking at the out-of-home care system in New South Wales and how it is manifestly failing Aboriginal kids, over a 1,000 of them that she studied. Um, But there is a strong link between women going into prisons and the destruction of Aboriginal families.
0: And I think the rates of incarceration of um, Indigenous women has gone up more than any other prison population group in the last 10 years as well.
2: Um, Yeah, that's very true. I mean, over the past um, decades, we've seen huge rates of Aboriginal women being incarcerated. And it's right. I mean, when you tear... Um, out Aboriginal women from the community, you're you're tearing apart so much. Um, you're taking apart so much strength that's within community, and you're ripping apart families. And that's the really traumatizing aspect of incarceration is just it rips apart Aboriginal families. And I think that's what's happened from the very beginning, like looking at it historically, That was a key um deliberate tactic, because when you rip apart a family, I mean, what else do you have? you you really, you really rip out the foundation of so many generations, you know what I mean? So I think that's been um, one of the really horrific things that have come out of the, since over the past 30 years, is just how many Aboriginal women we jail. And as Lorena said, with minor crimes, you look at what Aboriginal women are in jail for, and honestly, I don't think the majority, I don't even think, probably all Aboriginal women should be in jail because you look at them and, you know, a lot of them are victims of violence. We saw Jodie Gore over in WA. She was given this huge sentence for um, retaliating against her abuser. Um, and so I, I really believe that, you know, we really have to look at Aboriginal women in the jail and have Aboriginal women as an issue because if you look at it, uh, you see just how problematic it is.
0: Lorena, I want to draw your attention to an article that was written yesterday in the Financial Review by their senior reporter, Aaron Patrick, and in it he challenged the numbers that you had in the Deaths Inside uh, database in relation to deaths in custody. Do you want to respond to that?
1: We counted them. The numbers existed. We brought them all together and, you know, very carefully counted. We think that that number is an underestimation. Number one. Number two, the financial review has since printed a correction uh, because they accepted that the numbers that they quoted from the Institute of Criminology were actually incorrect. They had only counted uh, cases where people had died in prison custody, not police custody, so there was a, an error of fact that they corrected. There are many other issues that I have and that other people have with that article that are you know, gross misrepresentations of what coroners had said, um, and other, other issues to do with particularly the, the section describing David Dungay's death. And um, I, I think um, a number of people have called the reporter out on those. I think that there will be some complaints laid to the press council. Using the term Aborigine, for example, um, it, it's been a while since I've, I've read that, to be honest. It, it seemed a bit, it reminded me of the kind of takes that I used to read. 20 years ago but I also think that uh, what Amy said earlier about the structural issues in the media are apparent in that article I think that you know having not spoken to the reporter I think it's very easy to wander in and, and have a take about this stuff without context and without uh, historical knowledge.
2: Yeah I mean I would so totally um agree with that because as an Aboriginal journalist, I just can't imagine coming into an issue like this and thinking you know everything. Um, when you do, you know, like I think it's very um, char- characteristic of a lot of uh, non-Indigenous journalists coming into this area, thinking they can look at these facts and see it divorced from everything else, and think they know better than people who have been reporting on this issue for years and years and years, and not just um, journalists but um, lawyers. Aboriginal people themselves have lived experience of um, police brutality. The fact that he can come in and he think he can look at these facts and present them in a totally wrong, distorted way. I mean, from the very first sentence, David Dungay didn't die because he was black. He died because of a biscuit. I mean, it's just absolutely, I mean, that's totally wrong in a nutshell. But there's so many images that he uses of David Dungay that are just absolutely disgraceful. I mean, they're all deficit language, um, as if he never had... Um, they call him wretched, and I think the last the last paragraph is what said it all for me about the piece. And he said in the last paragraph, ultimately, though, Dungay was killed by his poor poor health Lee ruled his heart gave mm. way under stress as men responsible for his care tried to save him from himself a sadly appropriate analogy for the state of black and white relations in Australia today so I think that said it all about how racist this article is he's basically mm. saying that oh, oh white Australia is trying to help these poor black people but they just keep fighting against it you know what I mean it's this Myths of white benevolence that is so apparent in Aboriginal affairs and the way white Australia paternalistically looks down at us. And Dungay wasn't killed by his poor health. He was killed by the violence of the of the justice system. And you see that in in the nurse who who put that sedative in him and and the guards who who then you know push themselves down on him. So I just find it really unbelievable that he can look at the facts of the Dungay case and say that it was just because he wanted a biscuit, it was his poor health. I mean, that just shows exactly how um, you make invisible the actual violence that's perpetrated against Aboriginal people, and it's shown in the fact, you know, like why is this man writing this article when he has no background in this issue, you know, and, and why is it supported by a paper like the Australian Financial Review? Like I just think it's such a deliberate, I mean, there's even just facts wrong about the fact um, of the Royal Commission's recommendations were implemented. It's just wrong. That's a flat-out lie. So I, I just want to know why this article now, you know, after we had record crowds coming out over the weekend, why? Why have you decided to write this article? I just, yeah, the motivations behind it are what interests me and I actually think it's a deeply racist article.
1: Can I just add for the record, David Dungay was held down by five officers from the IAT and administered an, an emergent a sedative after he'd said twelve times that he could not breathe. Now, even the coroner, in delivering his findings, considered that that was the reason why he died, and recommended that the, the, the nurse in that case be possibly, you know, have her have their standards examined by the the um, nursing review board. So, to, to have that kind of assessment to diminish a life. To such a, uh, in such a way is, is really disrespectful to the family. Um, and we spent a lot of time with the Dungo family from before the inquest, you know, leading up to the coroner's inquest and then the two years of that long and drawn-out process. Uh, and now, you know, we're still following them today. And to have David's life reduced to that, it really exemplifies how little Black Lives Matter when you, when you can... Still read something in a in in a newspaper that that does dehumanise us like that. Well, you know, th- this man was loved. He had a he has a loving family. They are trying their best to get justice for him, and they have come up against some of the most um, appalling neglect. Four
0: hundred and thirty two deaths, Serena, and not one prosecution.
1: Why is that? Oh, it's a million dollar question, and it's also the most obvious. Uh, question: The obvious answer is there's no willingness in the system to prosecute. Prosecution often happens because it's in the public interest. There's a number of reasons why a DPP would investigate a, a death in custody, um, and public interest is one of them. So there hasn't been a public interest. Uh, quite often, there's. I mean, there's no pressure to to bring people to account for individuals to account for their actions. I mean, one of um, David's aunties outside the the inquest on the day that the the, um, decision was handed down said they just recommended more training for the guards. How much more training do they need to stop killing us? That's a question for the state and territory corrections and police um, departments to answer. Um, They have had enough training. So, um, you know, apart from systemic racism, what what else do you think it is?
0: I'd like to um, try and end this conversation on a positive note. (laughs) A lot of people have been buoyed by the size of the protests, both here and overseas. Some of the protests on the weekend were the biggest we've ever seen. Do you sense that a change is happening?
1: Certainly these are bigger and they're different. Um, I'm still thinking about how they are different. Um, But ultimately, I think being in the streets matters because it puts public pressure on the institutions that need to change. Um, we have a moment now where, where um, you know, things, things are changing. We, well, I would say to people that they can't turn away now. People who marched for Black Lives Mattering in the streets, non-Indigenous people, have to maintain the course now. They need to keep up the pressure on their own institutions to make the changes that we have been telling governments for decades need to happen big and small and from the obvious to the deeply structural. So really simple things like bail reform. So our mob aren't going into jail for traffic offences and unpaid fines. We know that people die in jail on remand. Um, we need to decriminalise certain um, you know, we need to decriminalise shoplifting, for example. That should be a civil process. Just a you know simple the the reduction, the, the repealing of summary offences public drunkenness, decriminalising public drunkenness, um, repealing mandatory sentencing, giving, the, giving judges and magistrates greater options in sentencing and for the sentencing to involve communities um, and it's directed towards justice reinvestment rather than you know, punitive, um, locking people away. So, you know, I think if people want to see change, they have to keep advocating for it. They can't just, you know, go back to normal life now. It has to it has to sustain public pressure as a way to bring change.
0: Thanks to Lorena Allam and Amy McGuire for joining us remotely. And thanks for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app, so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Forth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Sharon Davis, and thanks for listening.